Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. All right, everybody, why don't we get started? My name is David Bruner. This is our Long Story Short class here at Knox Presbyterian Church. Um, I'm so glad all of you are with us. Thank you for being here with us on this bright uh, Holy Wednesday evening. The sun is shining in through our sanctuary windows, so I give people over on this side of the sanctuary, you have my permission to get up and leave if you gradually become blinded during the course of my presentation. It's not my blinding intellect, it's the sun, so that's okay. Yeah, it's, having the sun in your eyes is nice in Illinois in April, there's no question about it. Um, before we get started, everybody turn around and say, thanks, Matt. Matt is here, even though his back is really bothering him. And I just want to say thank you to him. I appreciate him so much. He's my right arm in this process. And I'm really thankful that you're showing up this week. And we're going to keep praying for you that your back gets all better and doesn't bother you, especially this coming weekend. Um, so with all that in mind, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for bringing us all together. This is the week of the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. The week we journey with him from the upper room to the cross and from the cross to the empty grave. And Jesus, we ask that you would help us to understand a little bit more about that journey tonight as we study the scripture. Be present to us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Okay, so let me offer a little bit of recap. So I need to make a confession. I don't really know what number week we're on. I'm teaching the class and I don't know. Well, it's in a, in a classic, there's a reason for this, which is that it depends on when you start counting. So without further ado, I have declared by fiat that we are in week 13. My decision is final and unchallengeable. There is no court of appeal. <laughs> it's, so just pretend that last week was week 12 and everything will be fine. We're talking about the incarnation though. So you should know where we are. We're into the New Testament. Congratulations. Yes, Randy. Um, you were actually correct. It is uh -huh. I not only... We had the reading of the Bible before the week yes. began, and we skipped the week. I, am not, I have not only made a decision by fiat, but for once in my life, it's actually correct. Praise the Lord. Um, thank you, Randy. I'm, I'm relieved to hear that at least one person knows where we are. Um, the assigned texts for this week are under the heading of incarnation. So they're all about... Jesus' life and ministry. And so before we dive into those texts, and we're going to look at one in particular from John chapter 1, I want us to ask our usual question. What's our usual question? How did we get here? That's correct, yes. I've, I'm just, you're just going to keep seeing this picture of David Byrne until the end of the class. He's going to get a little bit bigger each week. I gotta be honest, I'm starting to laugh now when I look at him, because it's pretty silly that he's, he's wearing that. Um, how did we get here? So there's a big gap 
between the Old Testament and the New Testament, both chronologically and culturally. So let's talk about that for a minute. So one simple question is a helpful way in. So we'll, we'll just start with this question. So the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. What language is the New Testament written in? Greek, correct. Why? Why are they different? Um, yes, we'll just take popcorn answers. You don't, have, you don't have to get up, Don. You're good. You're good. That's a really great answer, yeah. So for those who didn't hear, Peg's answer was it has to do with the fact that a lot of the Jews in the diaspora, in the sort of larger Mediterranean area, spoke Greek. And so that was a way to get through to them. That's actually really good. Um, you can teach this class anytime you want to, Peg. Um, so the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, while the New Testament is written in Greek. There's a whole tale written in that apparently simple detail. And if you back up a little bit, we'll get to exactly the situation that Peg was talking about. So um, we wrapped up the Old Testament looking at Israel's return from exile. You're probably familiar with this detail, right? So Israel's dragged off to Babylon by Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, and they are permitted to return about 50 years later by Cyrus of Persia. That's in about 525 BC or so. When the Old Testament ends, um, Persia is the, the 800 pound gorilla. They are the people who are running the Middle East. By the time the New Testament starts, a new sheriff is in town. Um, and there's actually a whole lot of history that happens between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Um, Greek culture becomes enormously influential in the centuries between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. So the significance of Greek culture is really the reason why the New Testament is written in Greek. So, you know, if you think they were, the Hebrews return from exile around 525 BC or so, and maybe there's another 50 years in the Old Testament where we have records of particular things happening, there's still several centuries between the time period at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament when Jesus lived around 30 AD. So there's a significant span of time. And one big thing that happens is the Greeks are everywhere. So who's, who's the big dude in propagating Greek culture? Who? Alexander, Alexander exactly, yes. Um, there he is. You can see that's from a mosaic that was in a um, Greek person's private house about a century or two after Alexander died. And then, as now, wealthy people liked to show off by having expensive piece of, pieces of art in their homes. So this was a person who had a sort of very patriotic, stirring um, mosaic of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great conquers a whole, the known world, and it impacts our Bibles. Um, He's, the Greeks, led by Alexander, are the ones who um, c 
come after the Persians. So for a while, the Persians rule the roost, and then Alexander comes along, and he just destroys them. And Alexander sets up shop, takes control of much of the modern Middle East, including what we today think of as Egypt and Israel-Palestine. So all of that is being run by Greece. He gets as far east as modern Pakistan, which is wild and crazy to think about when you've got people who are basically traveling on foot or by horses, right? Um, he doesn't get much farther than that, turns back, and he eventually dies around 323 BC. So you can see this is still a good 300 years before Jesus comes along. But it's shaping the culture that Jesus will be born into. After Alexander dies, his empire splits apart, and so it's several different nation states, and they fight, and they don't get along, but they're all, um, they are all basically Greek-speaking and um, Greek in character. So they maintain many of the cultural institutions and practices that characterized life under Alexander. And Palestine in particular, the place where Jesus lived, is ruled by Greek speakers for another 300 years. So there's a good long season when Greek culture puts its stamp on Palestine. And so for obvious reasons, the Greek language becomes very popular. And if you think about it for a moment, I'm sure you can imagine why. So if the, the political ruler of your nation speaks a particular language, it's to your advantage to learn that language so that you can represent yourself and your cause better, you can ask for a favor, you can greet that person in their native tongue. Furthermore, Greek culture is enormously significant within the ancient world in many different areas, in education, in art, in philosophy. So just as today, many people from non-American nations learn English and come to America to study, to pursue a career, to better themselves. And this is, whether we know it or not, an expression of American cultural influence. In the same way, in the ancient world, Greek civilization functioned in that way, where to, be, to get an excellent education involved learning some Greek and becoming acquainted with Greek cultural customs. We're gonna talk a little bit about some of the ways you see Greek philosophy at play in John chapter one. It's there for reasons we'll discuss. So, the New Testament's written in Greek. Why? Because the authors of the New Testament wanted to get through to the largest, pop, the largest number of people. So, um, they could have written it in another language, but it would not have been as accessible to people. Greek was kind of the common tongue, or a tongue that many, many people in the ancient world spoke, and, and the limited number of people who could read were capable of reading. So, that's a little bit about how culture changed and how history changed between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. 
Did Jesus speak Hebrew or Greek or Latin or all of the above? So this is a really interesting question. So there are some passages, the, the answer is we're not sure. He may have spoken both or it may have been primarily one or the other. Right, he was, well, right. It's an interesting question. What language do you speak if you're the son of God, right? So there are some passages in the New Testament, as you probably know, where Jesus speaks in Aramaic that may indicate a historical memory of his speaking that language. But scholars also say, you know, um, if the, either the stories in the New Testament took place in the Greek tongue or they were translated into Greek almost immediately because the very earliest stuff we have in the New Testament is all in Greek. So it's also, it, it would not have been unusual even for an itinerant rabbi like Jesus to have spoken and communicated in, in Greek because that was the language so many people spoke and understood. But then the Catholic Church had the Bible in Latin. Right. So this, is, so this is part of what's so fascinating and why I love studying the history of the church is that so for a long time, Greek was the lingua franca of Christianity. And then what happens? Many centuries later, the center of gravity shifts west to Rome and to places that speak Latin. So, so there's a guy named St. Augustine of Hippo in the 300s who's absolutely a brilliant guy. He's got his share of detractors. They're all wrong. Um, but one of the things he couldn't do is read Greek. So it's very interesting. He just confesses very honestly in his writings and says, yeah, I never, I, I tried to teach me Greek when I was in school and I just didn't have a talent for it. And oh, I wish I could, but I just can't. So it's around that time, several centuries into the church's history, that you get what's called the Vulgate translation, where the Bible is translated into Latin, and that becomes for several centuries, almost millennia, the authorized version of the Bible. I used to be a, an altar boy in a Catholic church, and it, the Mass was in Latin. I had to learn all the prayers in Latin, which I did. Yep. Some, and some people still prefer that to this day, but part of what the Reformation is about, of course, is the right to hear, to participate in church in your native tongue, and the right to have the Bible in a language that you can read. Yeah. So these are, these are complicated issues that don't get unwound fully until the modern period. Yeah, having the Bible translated into different languages and the printing press just changed everything. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it is amazing still. I mean, never take it for granted that you can read the Bible in your native language, that we can all read it in English and in a good, reliable translation. I mean, it's, it's in most many languages now, but there are still a lot of people that can't do it. Um, I remember visiting the seminary in Cairo. There's a Presbyterian seminary in Cairo that I visited, and they had the Bible in Arabic in their native language, which was beautiful and wonderful, but they, for a lot of theology, they had to read it in translation. You can't read John Calvin in Arabic. You have to get it in translation. So there's still a lot of work going on to translate 
not necessarily the Bible, although certainly that, but also the intellectual resources of the Christian faith into the vernacular for people. So let's read John 1, 1 through 18. So uh, pull out your Bibles. I have up on the screen that we're going to read it in two versions. I don't think we should do that because it will take too long. Um, I do want to encourage you, if anything in this version of John 1, in the New Revised Standard Version of John 1, doesn't make sense to you or catches for you, I would encourage you to look it up and read it in the message translation. Peterson's rendering of John 1 is, is poetic and, and quite lovely. Um, but I'll read this out loud. I want you to, as usual, scrutinize it, come up with one question you have or one comment uh, that, you, that you notice. Here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law, indeed, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, has made him known. Okay, uh, turn to a neighbor, peruse this passage, come up with a comment or a question. We'll come back in a few. All right, why don't we come back together? So I'd love to hear your comments or questions or your neighbor's comments or questions. The, prona the pronouns in the first, I don't have a glasses on, hold on. The first paragraph are a little confusing to me. Sure. And some of us are still talking about what week we should be in, but all that being said. <laughs> fair, entirely fair. 
Um, can you address and make clearer what John is, who John is referring to in this first paragraph? Thank you. Sure. Yeah, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So he's talking about Jesus. We're gonna, so a lot of what we're going to do today is sort of unpack how revolutionary it is that when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that more, but it, whenever he says the Word or he, that's referring to Jesus. The interesting thing, if you read the three synoptic Gospels, it takes a long time to figure out exactly who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. And in John, it's, a, it's in the first paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, he, he's the Word, and he created everything, and right. then the word, word was made flesh. <laughs> right. Yep. We're going to talk about that in a second, too. So the Gospel of John starts differently than the other Gospels, and it, in some ways it kind of puts the cookies on the lowest shelf because it'll tell you there's a word, his name is Jesus, he existed before all time. Now let's have some examples of that, whereas the other Gospels begin somewhat differently. I think it's interesting that the, um, I'm a, I have the New Living Translation, mm -hmm. and it says, in the beginning, the word already existed. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of ties in later on when John says, he came before me, he's already been here. So yeah. it's like, oh, cool, that's kind of neat. Yeah. That's right. So the Gospel of John is the Gospel where you have the strongest account of the what we call the pre-existence of Jesus. So the, the idea that Jesus didn't just come into the world and then disappear when he died or when he went up to heaven, that Jesus had always existed and been a part of God from the very beginning. So John's gospel is the one where Jesus says, he gets into the argument with the Jewish leaders in chapters 8, 9, and 10, and it culminates when he says, before Abraham was, I am. So if you're, some of you may not be familiar with that passage, that's okay. But he makes this, in the context of Jewish piety in the first century, he basically says, I was around long before Abraham. And that's the end of the argument, right? Because the Jews with whom he's talking understandably say, okay, you're completely insane, right? Abraham was thousands of years ago. We are the descendants of Abraham. You can't say that you were around before Abraham. But from, from the perspective of the Gospel of John, it's the sober truth. Because Jesus is the Word of God, and he's been with God since the very beginning. So raise your hand if, so we're going to do the, the patented Dave Bruner, totally unique to me, never used by anyone else, scale of red, yellow, green, to measure your level of, of confusion. So if you thought this was, uh, raise your hand if you're green and you thought this was pretty clear. Okay, I see several hands, that's good. How many of you, well, I'll... How many of you are yellow, where you're like, I don't know, this is a little confusing, I see a few hands, and how many of you are red, where you're like, this is pretty tough? Okay, <laughs> David Bebb Jones says, the Reverend David Bebb Jones. <laughs> yes, uh, and let me say, there's something to be said for that point of view as well. I told Darren, I said, I'm teaching John 1 tonight, and he said, oh, okay, good, good luck with that. And I said, yeah, no kidding. 
So I've, I spent all afternoon in my office just baking my noodle, trying to get my head around this passage. And it is one of these passages that the more you study it, the more elusive and mysterious it becomes. Um, thank you for participating in that straw poll. Um, let me keep going. Let me point out some things to you that might help you understand this a little bit more. So one way of understanding what's unique about the Gospel of John is to contrast John 1 with the beginnings of the other Gospels. So each of the Gospels are different. Um, They harmonize in interesting ways, Um, but they are different. So let's take a minute and look at the beginnings of the four Gospels. So what we're going to do, we're not going to read them verse by verse. So stick a finger in John 1 or put a bookmark down if you have a bookmark. But turn with me now to Mark 1. And we're going to use the patented Dave Bruner method of just, I often get over by just reading the paragraph headings, which will tell you a little bit about what's going on. Um, in, in the case of the Gospel of Mark, it's even easier because all you have to do is read a single verse. Okay, so what does Mark 1.1 say? Someone just read it out for us. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right, boom. That's, that's it. That's all the gospel of Mark gives us by way of introduction. And then the rest of chapter 1 is about John the Baptist. It's about the, and then in chapter, in verse 9 of chapter 1, you get the baptism of Jesus In verse 12 of chapter 1, and following, you're already getting the temptation of Jesus. So the Gospel of Mark is the no-frills, bare-bones version of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So it literally starts by saying, here's the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Okay, so, and then it's off to the races. So that's a striking contrast from John. But saying this is the gospel of the Son of God does not, does not say that he was the Word made flesh. Totally different. That, that's true. Those, those are their different expressions. They're pointing to the same reality. But yeah, so the... the well, if Jesus could have been, you know, fathered by the, the Holy Spirit and be a human, but we know he's both human and divine. But this doesn't say it here in Mark, but it certainly says it in John. Sure. So John has the most, John is the one that gives us the, this very rich, firmly fleshed out understanding of Jesus as the word of God. Um, And you don't get that in Mark. Mark definitely believes Jesus is the Messiah and that he's risen from the dead and that he's the savior of the world, but he's not, he's just not including that sort of information. Yeah. And it's, it's okay because the, the net, the way we ought to read the Bible is cumulative, right? So when I talk about the four gospels as making kind of a harmony, that's part of what I'm getting at, right? If you're just listening to the tenor part of a quartet, it might be beautiful, but you're not getting the whole thing. It's only when you listen to all four parts singing together that you get the whole effect. So that's the gospel of Mark. Now, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. So someone share with me what your heading says above Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. 
The genealogy of Jesus, yes. So from verses 1 through 17, it's tracing Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham. So you can see Matthew is giving us quite a bit more background on who Jesus is. And then in verse 8, what's the heading you have above verse 18, if you have one? The birth of Jesus, right? So this, this gives us uh, the well-known story, we hear it every Christmas, about the birth of Jesus, Joseph doesn't want to disgrace Mary, etc., etc. okay? So Matthew gives, Mark gives us virtually nothing, Matthew gives us a great deal more. That's correct. That's, that's exactly right. So what we're getting is different in service of the same point, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior. Okay, so now turn with me to Luke. Luke 1. Okay. So what I, what I love about Luke is Luke is by far the most thorough of the three accounts of the ones we've looked at so far, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So um, I have a heading above chapter one, verse five. Do you guys have a heading above chapter one, verse five? What does your heading say? Gabriel predicts John's birth. Gabriel predicts John's Other people have something similar? Eugene's, oh, well. He's, he's doing a paraphrase, right? That's why. A childless couple conceives. That's, that's nice. A more, I don't, I don't mean to denigrate, a more literal translation would, um, would not put it that way, but that's exactly right. So mine says, the birth of John the Baptist foretold. So there's an, ex- in other words, there's an extensive account of what happens prior to Jesus' birth as well as the birth of John the Baptist. So at what point in the Gospel of Luke do you get the story of the birth of Jesus? Chapter 2. So it's not even until chapter 2 that you get the story of Jesus' birth. And then we get, of course, the story we hear every Christmas. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world could be registered. I could probably do five or six verses from memory before I lost my way. Um, So you can see the Gospel of Luke is even, so Mark has almost nothing, Matthew has a little bit more, Luke has even a little bit more than Matthew. So now you can uh, go back to John 1. So what strikes you about the differences between, and similarities between these other three Gospels and the Gospel of John? The other, at least two of the other um, versions, or chapters are more historical yes rather than biblical at least to me so they're part of what's going on in for instance matthew and luke is an account of where jesus came from and how he was born and john does not give us that that's exactly right this is uh from luke but with the message translation and it's kind of interesting because in the first couple of verses in this translation, basically it's saying, there's, you've heard so many stories, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell, I'm, I'm analyze this, and I'm going to tell sure. you how it really is. Yeah. 
And then he goes on to uh, talk about John the Baptist's birth and, and yep. all that coming up, you know, and then going into chapter two, the birth of Jesus. So he was being, he was, he was actually setting out a precept to his whole right. gospel that he's going to be analytical. Right. Luke presents himself as a historian, right? And he, he says, okay, I've, I, he says, he describes his work as an orderly account, right? That he's trying to, uh, there's a lot of, there may be some conflicting information or this and that, and so I've tried to put it all out in an orderly way. Even Luke doesn't get the last word, but that's okay. So what other differences do we notice between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the Gospel of John? It seems like John is more focused on just, I don't know, more of a ethereal uh, divine version of Jesus, whereas the others are a little more human. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's something to that, yeah. So John's... The first chapter of the Gospel of John is more theological. It's more metaphysical, if you want to use that word. Um, a negative word would be speculative. So John is trying to catch us in wonder at this reality that Jesus, this very human flesh and blood being, was part of God from the very beginning of time. Now, that's a beautiful and profound point. I would not try and explain it in Sunday school, right? Whereas you can see in Sunday school, you can teach Mark 1 that Jesus was baptized, right? You could, you could say, well, Jesus was baptized. Many of us have been baptized. Baptism is when we get, you know, you could do that. John's point is more refined, more deep, also more confusing. Um, let me share a little bit more about this. Oh, one more question. Does anyone have any idea what book of the Old Testament John is intentionally evoking? Isaiah. Not Isaiah, although that's a good guess. Not Elijah. Genesis. Yeah, it's right there in those first three words, in the beginning. So um, this is really important. So in the beginning... By evoking Genesis 1, the author of John takes us way, 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 way back. Not just to the human origin of Jesus, but to the origins of the cosmos. So part of what I love, right? So which of the four Gospels has the most, has the biggest and best account of Jesus' origins? It depends on how you answer the question right? In one sense, it's the gospel of Luke, because Luke gives you like a whole chapter of background, and it's well organized, and it's step by step, and then only in chapter two do you get to the verse of Jesus. In other ways, it's the gospel of John, because the gospel of John says, all right, Luke, I'm going to do you one better. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of time. Jesus was there. <laughs> so it's uh, scriptural one-upmanship of a lovely and charming order. John is taking us back to the origins of the cosmos. So in Genesis 1, God creates by speaking. You may remember this from week 3, whatever week it was. Um, what God does over the course of the seven days is introduce order 
and structure into the world he is creating. So you, you remember way back in verse in Genesis 1, verse 1, when Genesis, it says, the world was a formless void. The world was tohu vabohu, right? You remember that? So God, step by step, says, okay, first there's going to be sky, and then there's going to be land, and then there's going to be sea, and then let's have things in the sky, like stars and moon and sun, and then let's have things in the, um, in the sea, like fish, and then let's have creatures to live on the land, like animals and human beings, right? Step by step, um, ticking all the boxes, like a craftsman with a meticulous plan for how to make a flourishing world. God creates by speaking, and God's speech introduces order and structure. So what the Gospel of John is doing is taking Genesis 1 and riffing on it, retelling it a little bit, um, in a way that a first-century Jew would have noticed. So you've probably had this experience if you've ever heard a cover version of one of your favorite songs. So I'm a Bob Dylan fan. I like Bob Dylan's music a lot. Some of you like his music. You know that his songs are always being covered by other musicians. So they take the original Bob Dylan version and they tweak it. And sometimes instead of Bob Dylan singing it, it's a woman singing it. And instead, sometimes instead of a guitar, they put a piano. And sometimes instead of a piano, they put a tuba. And you think, that was not a good aesthetic choice. Don't do that, right? And, but there are all these different versions of it. So something similar is going on here in the Gospel of John. He's riffing. Um, but there's this distinctive twist. It's a linguistic twist. It's in the word he uses. So when, when John says, in the beginning was the word, the word, word, is very special. So the Greek word translated into English as word is the Greek word logos. How many of you are, have heard of that word logos before? Several of us. Okay, good. So logos is more multivalent. It has more meanings than our ordinary English word. So it can mean word in the ordinary sense. So if you look at Matthew 8.8, 8, the story of Jesus healing the centurion's daughter, centurion comes to him and says, my daughter is sick, please come heal her. And Jesus says, oh, I'll come. And the centurion says, nope, you don't have to come. You just say the word and my daughter will be healed. You just say the logos and my daughter will be healed. So it does mean that. It also has this sense relating to rationality, uh, giving a reason for something, giving an account of something. So you'll see um, in Luke chapter 16, um, someone will say, okay, did you do the job I told you to do? And they say, no, I didn't, I'm sorry. And the person says, well, wait a second, you have to give me a logos of why that is. You have to give me a, a reason, an account for why you failed in the task with which I entrusted you. So logos on one hand means word, on the other hand it means giving a reason for something. And then you get, this is where it gets wild and crazy and this is what I really love. So in ancient Greek culture, in the culture that was swimming around when 
Um, when Jesus lived and in the couple centuries leading up to him, this word logos had a very specific meaning in philosophy. So if you read philosophical schools like the Stoics or the Platonists, the followers of Plato, they would talk about the logos. And for them, it meant something like the rational principle of the universe or the creative plan of God that governs the world. And I, I hope you see how, so logos has three meanings. We just talked about them, right? So on one hand, it means word, just regular old word. On another hand, it means reason. Give me the reason why you did that. And then there's this third meaning that's really interesting, which is the rational principle of the universe or the creative plan of God being worked out in the world. And all of those meanings are there when the author of John says, in the beginning was the logos. Are you with me on that so far? I see a few head, heads nodding. Not every head, but a few. Okay, let me say a little bit more about this. So there's a, there's a rational principle of the universe or a creative plan of God governing the world. So the idea was that this rational principle was found throughout the world, but that it was not itself embodied or material. So think again about a craftsman making something, like a shoemaker. So if you're a really good shoemaker, you have a plan in your head for how you're going to make a pair of shoes. You know exactly what you're going to do. You know exactly how you're going to do it. You have a reason for everything you do. You talk to an experienced craftsman, and they, you know, they have the right materials, they have the right tools, they practice economy of movement. So they might say, well, I, I like to turn the shoe over at this point with my right hand and not my left hand because it helps me use my left hand to get in here and do this with this thing, right? Um, the, the craftsman's skill would be evident upon examining his craftsmanship. So if you look at what the shoemaker has made, you would say, dang, these are an excellent pair of shoes. This is amazing. But the, where is the plan to make the shoes? It's in the craftsman's head. Um, he's got the know-how and the skills and experience to make it. So for the ancient Greeks, um, the logos, the rational principle of the world, wasn't, was, was kind of... It was not embodied or material. It was something you could discover or learn about from looking at the world, but it wasn't just out there in the world to be found or pointed at. You would never say, like Christians might, oh, hey, there's the logos over there. That was not something that Greeks would say. If you were a Stoic or a Platonist, so if you were an ancient Greek philosopher, you thought of your job as, in some sense, living in harmony with the Logos. Um, in other words, your job was to discern the rational principle behind the world or at work in the world and 
Your job was to live in harmony with it. Stoics would say, okay, you know, um, your job is to behave in a, in a generally a rational way, right? And don't let your feelings and emotions push you around. Job is to live in harmony with the logos. And there's a certain training that goes along with that, okay? Okay, so I think I've lost some of you in talking about the logos as sort of intelligible principle. So let me stop and take some questions. Randy's had a question since like 30 minutes ago. No, this is actually related to logos. Great. And what I was wondering is, in the translation from Greek, what we find when that word word is there, it's capitalized. Mm -hmm. In the Greek original writings, was the word logos capitalized when referring to, uh, in essence, the word? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. So in my New Revised Standard Version, in John 1.1, 1, 1, when it says, in the beginning was the word, the, the word word is capitalized. I've never said the word word so often in my entire life. Um, I don't know, because I don't have a, transla a Greek translation in front of me, capitalization conventions were quite different back then. I wouldn't be surprised if the answer was no. Um, I think that's a translation editorial decision to help us understand more of what's being said. Yeah. Um, okay, so we were talking about three senses of logos, right? Logos means word, logos means reason, and logos means rational principle behind all of creation. And the third meaning is sort of the most new and wild and crazy for many of you. Um, if I've left you behind in trying to explain that, ask a question. Not really a question, an observation about yeah. this beginning connection that John references. If, I've always thought it was interesting if you go to um, the first letter of John 1.1, 1, 1, it reads almost the same, Yeah. right? Um, that which was from the beginning. That's his first sentence, mm -hmm. which I just thought was very, mm -hmm. pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. So people, scholars like to get into arguments about whether or not it was, whether or not the letters of John are by, are by John the Apostle or whether the Gospel of John is by John the Apostle. We can let the scholars debate that. One thing that is for sure is if, they're, if, it's, if those letters and the Gospel of John are by different people, they're, they have the same notes, right? Because they're making a lot of the same point. Um, and it's quite lovely. All right. Anyone else hungering to ask a question at this point? Okay. So let me keep going and show you why this matters. So we talked before about how John is riffing. By using the word logos, so we saw before, he starts out, he says, in the beginning, and every Jew in the first century would have said, oh, aha, okay, I know what this is about. He's talking about Genesis 1. And then, but then he goes on to say, in the beginning was the logos. And Jews of the first century, if they were educated, if they had some Greek education, they would have also said, oh, this is interesting. He's taking the Hebrew scriptures, but he's mixing in some Judaism. 
Um, sorry, he's taking the Hebrew scriptures, but he's mixing in some Greek philosophy. He's mixing in this idea about the logos. But then the conclusion he arrives at in verses 10 through 14 would have made everybody in the room confused and angry. And this is part of what I love about it. So look again at verses 10 through 14. He was in the world. So this is still Jesus we're talking about, although that only becomes apparent at the end of the prologue. So he was in the world, Jesus was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And of course, in verse 14, when it says the word became flesh, that, that means the logos became flesh. So you've got to picture your hypothetical Jewish reader from the first century. They're reading, and they're reading verses 1 through 9. They're like, okay, fine, yeah, this is interesting, that's fine. But then when they get to, to verse 14, and it says the logos became flesh, that hypothetical reader is going to say, what? What are you talking about? Nothing in Greek or Jewish thought anticipated that the idea that the anticipated the idea that the logos could be personal. This is really a uniquely Christian idea. John is saying that God's creative plan for all the world, the rational heart of everything that is, has a name and it is personal, and it is Jesus Christ. So God not only has a creative plan for the cosmos, this plan becomes part of the cosmos in the human Jesus Christ. So this is a really revolutionary idea. In the ancient world, it was commonsensical to say that there was a God or a higher power of some kind, it was commonsensical to say that God had a creative plan, that there was a rational order and structure to the world. So sometimes today you'll meet people that say, the world has no point, we're all just here on accident, everything pretty much happens at random. This was not a, there were some people in the ancient world that thought like that, but not a lot. Most of them had a stronger sense of there's some kind of higher power, there's some reason we're here, we're trying to figure it out. What was revolutionary about Christianity and revolutionary about John chapter one is this idea that the creative plan of God gets squeezed down into one human being, Jesus. So go back to this idea of the craftsman, right? So the craftsman is making his shoe. He's excellent at making shoes. 
the glory, the skill of the craftsman is evident when you look at the shoes. You think, wow, this is an amazing pair of shoes. But the, the logos of the craft is in the mind of the craftsman. So suppose someone comes along to you and says, okay, the craftsman loved the shoes so much that he became a shoe. Right? If that sounds weird, good. Because it needs to feel weird for us to get how other people looked at Christians in the first and second centuries. So the idea of God becoming part of the creation or the creative, rational principle behind the whole universe becoming part of the universe blew people's minds. And it still does. So say to a first century Jew, if you said to a first century Jew, Jesus is the Messiah, they would get that idea. They might not necessarily agree with you, but they would understand it. They would say, okay, sure, that's fine. Maybe he's the Messiah. Show me the miracles. Tell me about why you believe he's the Messiah. Let's have an argument about this. To say to them, Jesus is the Logos, would provoke confusion. They would say, okay, why are you saying that? I don't think that works that way. How much education have you had? Are you sure you understand what a Logos is? And then if you went even further and said, well, Jesus is the Logos of God, and it just so happens that he was crucified, <laughs> that they would have just walked away from you in frustration. So the idea that the, the Logos not only became incarnate, that God's creative wisdom and purpose not only became a human being, but then went all the way down to the very depths of the human experience on the cross was particularly mind-blowing. This is all there in the first chapter of John's gospel. So when we read it, we have to be, it helps to be aware of what a remarkable, astonishing claim is being made. Let me stop there and see if there are any questions or comments. Is there any, any significance to the fact that they start calling Jesus the light in a few of the verses? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, it's, another way, um, it's another way of talking about his divine nature. It's another way of talking about Jesus as rational principle, right? So light helps you understand things, right? If you can't see the book you're reading, you turn on the light. If you can't see what's happening in the room in front of you because it's dark, you turn on the light. So I think the idea by calling him that, part of what they're saying is that he, Jesus is the one that shines a light on the purpose of human life. I think that's something like that is what they're trying to get at. I guess it, it makes sense that uh, the logos can calm the waves and the wind mm -hmm. in the boat. I mean, why not? <laughs> but then uh, when Jesus died on the cross, I mean, he was both a spiritual and a human Mm -hmm. presence and I mean the human part of him died but certainly the God part of him didn't die mm -hmm. right yeah I mean so there's there's a profound so so much of Christian theology um, takes its start in something like John 1 right so if if 
if we um if we say that the word became flesh in Jesus Christ, what does that mean about the word? So does it mean that the word of God became hungry, right? Does it mean that the word of God got stabbed in the side with a spear? So there, like, there are, Christian theology is nothing other than centuries of argument and debate about these questions. And most people just kind of shrug them off and say, I don't need to know the answer to that. But theologians are the ones who are like, no, listen, we got to figure this out. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's uh, enormously complicated, right? And what Christians want, what's at stake there, what Christians want to affirm is that Jesus was, Jesus was really God, but that um, God's becoming human in Jesus was not... It, it isn't like God um, stopped being God when he became human in Jesus. Um, and so to find a way to affirm that while still holding on to all the other stuff we want to say about Jesus is, is complicated, and it's hard to do. Um, look with me real quick at chapter 1 again, and let me find the particular verses I want to show you to. I mean, um, look again at verses 10 through 13. So I think what you see here, too, is um, he was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. So those two verses tell the story of the cross. So part of what John is telling us all the way here at the beginning is that <laughs> It is this further irony that although Jesus is the logos of God, he is the divine wisdom ordering creation. When the divine wisdom shows up in the world, the world looks at it and says, nah, we don't want that, <laughs> right? And it nails Jesus to a cross. So there's this kind of double irony or double surprise in this story. One, that God becomes human, and second, that when God becomes human, everybody doesn't like it and turns away. Um, so I'm going to move on to some takeaways. Um, if you uh, have a question or a thought while I'm talking, go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll try and come to you with a microphone. So let me flesh out even further why I think this is important. So the, the first point I would make is one about what I'm calling Christ and creation. Um, so verse 3 says, all things came into being through him. All things came into being through Jesus. And without him, not one thing came into being. So the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus... This human being that taught, that had a mom and dad, who died and who rose again, Jesus is in some sense the reason, the logos, the organizing principle behind the whole created world. So when we, we often read the Old Testament and think, okay, Jesus isn't there yet. And of course that's not wrong because Jesus hasn't been born yet. But in another sense, when we read the Old Testament, we have to look for Jesus kind of behind the scenes or under the surface, as he were, 
as it were. Because if the Gospel of John is right, it can't simply be that creation is just God hanging out by himself and there's no Jesus in the picture. Right? Jesus has to be intimately involved in creation from the very beginning of time because he is the, he is the logos. He's the organizing principle. All things came into being through him. So, and think for a second about what that means. I find this a very profound point. So, part of what this means is that um, Jesus is... Jesus, if Jesus is who John says he is, if he is the Logos, if all things were created through him, then he is the mysterious truth at the very center of human life. Um, anyone who's ever asked, what is a life and why do I live it? What am I doing on this planet? Why? what's going to get me up in the morning? People answer those questions in all kinds of different ways, and many of them have nothing to do with Jesus at all. But anyone who's ever asked that question, whether they knew it or not, they were asking about Jesus Christ. I think that's what the Gospel of John tells us. And so this has something to do with the, the universality of the Christian Gospel. The Christian gospel has to do with every man, woman, and child on the face of the planet, everyone who's ever lived in the past, and everyone who will live until Jesus Christ comes back. It's, and we sometimes have this, we sometimes try to shrink down Jesus' area of responsibility and authority so that it's just me and Jesus. And there can be good reasons for that, but I think that's too small. Jesus is a lot bigger than just my personal Lord and Savior, although he is that. He is a lot bigger than just one religious choice. He is the one through whom all things were made. He is the mysterious truth at the center of all human life, if the Gospel of John is right. So think about what this means. So it means that Jesus is creator. Jesus is the mysterious creative wisdom involved in all cultures and people groups. There's not a single culture or people group on the world, in the world, that was not created through Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. There's not a single profession or trade that was not created through Jesus Christ or for Jesus Christ. So when I talk about the universality of the Christian claim, this is kind of what I'm getting at, right? Is that Jesus is Lord over the whole world, over every aspect of human life, because he, he was there to create it. Um, all the arts and sciences, um, you know, flip through the undergraduate course book at Loyola or the University of Chicago, and let your mind be boggled by all the disciplines that are studied there. And then think to yourself, okay, what does it mean that every single one of these disciplines has Jesus as its Lord? <laughs> right? Jesus is the Lord over mechanical engineering and accounting and, uh, you know, I don't know, 16th century French poetry. Like, what does that mean? I, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it's true because the Gospel of John says so. So, 
anything and everything that is finds its meaning in Jesus Christ. So when I talk about the, you know, is this, um, the Gospel of John in one sense is the smallest of all the creation stories because it tells us very, not the creation stories, it's the smallest of all the origin stories about Jesus. It gives us very little factual information about who Jesus was, where he was born, his lineage, etc., etc. It does give us this incredibly strong and rich statement about Jesus' lordship over the whole world and over every aspect of human life. And that's part of what I love about it. He sustains the world. If he stops saying, I don't care, we all go away. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's the first point. The first point is about Christ and creation, about the universality of the Christian message. Second point. Um, God is personal. This, so this one's probably... You probably think this already, but I want to underscore the importance of it for all of us. So God is personal. Again and again and again in the Bible, we see God working through people. God works through people. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 12, right? When God chooses Abraham and says, I will bless you and you will bless others and you will be a light to the nations. I mean, it, it arguably goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when God creates Adam and Eve and says, okay, take care of this garden and I give you dominion over the animals and the fish. Dominion in the sense of wise rule and leadership. John builds on this principle and he even arguably intensifies it because for the Gospel of John, the logos of God right? The, the highest unsurpassable principle of divine truth is not a book. It's not a computer program. It's not anything. It's Jesus himself. It is a person. It is a person with skin on. God's wisdom, his plan and purpose for creating the world is not a book, a computer program, a set of rules. It is a person, Jesus Christ. So that's really important. So it's often the case, particularly in 21st century America or in other parts of the Western uh, world, that people assume that the only way to attain ultimate truth is through impersonal means. So sometimes people say, okay, the only, the only way to really get at what truth is is to take, uh, take yourself, take personal investment out of the equation. So for instance, the other day I read a very annoying article about how some health insurance companies have started using algorithms to approve or deny people's health insurance claims. So it used to be the case that if you wanted to deny someone's health insurance claim, you had to, a real doctor had to look at it. And there was a form, probably a form in triplicate that they had to stamp, right? And they had to write the reason why they'd rejected the health insurance form. Now there are these algorithms that in, a, in at least some cases allow health insurance companies to reject hundreds or thousands of applications for care at a time. And it, why do they do it? It's more efficient for them, which allows them to save money. But what they've done by doing that is write the personal out of that equation. 
right? Are you with me on this point? So that it's not, it has become a less personal interaction. It's more efficient financially, but less humane. This is, you know, we might think about scientific experimentation, which is a very wonderful and valuable way of pursuing real knowledge about the world. It relies on um, impersonal methods, at least most of the time, right? If you're studying physics or chemistry or biology, you don't ask, you know, you're not sitting down and taking an opinion poll, you're trying to get impersonal data that anyone could discover. Um, what John says is that whatever the virtues there may be of pursuing knowledge in an impersonal way, and there are many, ultimate truth, the ultimate truth about the universe comes through personal means, which means relationships, intimacy, risk, things like this. Um, there's a wonderful story about a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas that I'm very fond of. He taught at Duke University for many years, and um, he was on the faculty of the Divinity School. He had many secular, non-believing colleagues who would sometimes tease him about his religious faith. One day, one of them came to him and said, hey, Stanley, um, I only have about 10 minutes but I want you to know I'm really curious about this Christianity thing that you're interested in. Can you explain it to me in about 10 minutes? Is there, is there a way you can help me to understand it? And it, sort of a stupid question, right? Christianity, like many world religions, is not to be reduced to 10-minute sound bites. But I thought his answer was very brilliant. He said, well, no, I can't explain it to you in 10 minutes. But you know what we can do, if you want, is we can get down on our knees together and pray. And would you like to do that with me? Yeah. And well, the guy said no. So um, what happened, but it was a wonderful way of reshifting that conversation, essentially to say, I cannot offer you disengaged knowledge, right? I cannot offer you impersonal acquaintance with the truth of Christianity. But if you're willing to get down on your knees with me and pray, you might hear something, or you might learn something. So the idea that ultimate truth is personal because God is personal is really important. Just one final point. God is faithful but surprising. This is something that should be familiar to us as well. Um, one of the things we've seen throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is the fact that God is faithful but always in ways that are surprising. So, God chooses a small, insignificant family to bless the whole world. God allows Israel to fall to Babylon and then brings them back. So, um, the biblical God is one upon whom you can rely, but he's going to be faithful in unexpected ways. And I think this is something you see in, in John 1 and in other parts of the New Testament scriptures as well. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Logos of the Greeks. Um, he is these things, but he, he, he is the Messiah in a very different way than people expected. And he is a very different kind of Logos than people expected. And I just think that's so important for our lives and faith, right? Um, to remember that God is always at work and it may well be the thing that is least expected that turns out to be how God is active in our life. 
My friend Robert Jensen used to say, if God is alive, it means he can still surprise you. And I think the, the message of Scripture is that God is very much alive, and He's very unpredictable. <laughs> he's on our side. He loves us. He's here for us, but He will surprise us in ways we don't expect. Um, those are just some takeaways. We're going to stop here. Um, stick around and ask questions uh, if you like. Thank you for being here, and I'll see you next week uh, for more Jesus content. Thank you. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks to our technical assistant, Matthew Sunblade. To find out more about our mission and ministry, visit our website, knoxpres.org. You can join us for Sunday worship in person or online as well. Thanks, and see you next week.